on Textbooked. I think all of these regimes kind of count on this idea of an enemy, an enemy within or an enemy without, to justify their own authoritarianism. There's always an enemy that allows political leaders to kind of stir up grievances and justify normally unjustifiable actions. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gib Hostin. And I'm Oliver Wang. And you're listening to Untextbooked. In history class, we generally learn that the United States is a beacon for democracy throughout the world. Way back in the 1700s, American revolutionaries fought for freedom from the British monarchy. Soldiers in World War II fought against fascism. So that means liberty and justice for all, right? Not exactly. I was under the impression that democracy had actually already won over the world. Then, I took some more advanced classes on democracy in college, and I also read this book by Ben Rhodes, and it actually completely broke this misconception. The book is called After the Fall, The Rise of Authoritarianism in the World We've Made. Ben Rhodes writes about how democracy in the world is actually backsliding, and how a lot of that stems directly from social and political developments in the U.S., So this book really made me question our mission and our identity as a country, as well as the ripple effects our actions can have on the rest of the world. Ben Rhodes is also a former national security advisor under President Barack Obama. You might also recognize him from his two podcasts, Pod Save the World and Missing America. Today, we'll take a closer look at the past, present, and future of global democracy and how the United States, a champion for democracy throughout the Cold War, has played a significant role in its regression. Welcome to the podcast. I was actually originally drawn to your book because the title, The Rise of Authoritarianism, isn't something that I would have previously associated with the 21st century. Was that something that you were always like keenly aware of, or was that something that you discovered through your past years in the White House? Yeah, well, it's a great question, and it's a great place to start. And it's great talking to you, Oliver. I, you know, I think what's interesting for me in writing this book, kind of reflecting on my own journey through politics, is that when I was starting out in college, it was the late 90s. There was a famous book, actually, that kind of shaped how people were thinking in that decade of the 90s, the end of history. And it kind of suggested that all the big questions of the 20th century, you know, communism versus capitalism, fascism, obviously, versus democracy in World War II, that those questions have been settled. And I think, if I'm honest, I kind of took that for granted. It's not that I didn't know that it was a tough world out there, but I think, you know, that was the assumption I had around the time that I was going into politics myself in the 2000s. And I think by the end of the Obama administration, even before the 2016 election, 
I could kind of feel that things were moving in a different and wrong direction globally. And then you had the 2016 election in which we had the election of a figure who resembled more <laughs> the autocratic leaders around the world than he did kind of conventional American politicians. And so that that's really the starting point for the book. What, why was this happening and why was it happening in so many places? Right. So I recently read a Freedom House report. And for those who don't know, Freedom House is a nonprofit government-funded organization that produces really sound research on democracy. And so this report kind of said that throughout the past decade, democracy has been falling throughout the world. And I think in the past year, there was over 60 countries that fell in their level of democracy. And so my question was that democracy is backsliding like all over the world, but you chose to focus your book mostly on Hungary, Russia, and China. What methods are being used to suppress democracy in those countries? Yeah, so I, I chose those three out of what could have been many other options. And I actually, I'd add the United States to that. It's really four for a couple of reasons. The first thing is that each of those countries was on the other side of the Iron Curtain. So in the Cold War, you know, Hungary and, and Russia and China were all in the communist autocratic camp, if you will. If you read the book, it deals with kind of the 30-year period after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. And I thought it'd be interesting to see how did this go wrong <laughs> in all three of these places. And I also thought that they each represented a very distinct flavor of the kind of authoritarianism we're dealing with. In Hungary, you had an, a leader, Viktor Orban, get elected through a democratic process in 2010 and basically spend a decade running a playbook to turn Hungary from a democracy into an autocracy. And frankly, I think that's kind of what the danger is in the United States, is somebody getting power through an election and using that power to change the nature of the government. And what Viktor Orban did is he, you know, he filled the courts with kind of far-right judges who would find in favor of his agenda. He redrew the districts for the parliament there to, to vastly overrepresent his political party. He enriched some kind of cronies, some guys who financed his politics and they bought up the media and they turned the media into kind of a propaganda machine for Orban and his party. And he kind of wrapped it all up in this us versus them message. And that's a playbook that I think we've seen a lot of places. Then Russia, you know, Putin kind of represents, he was the first guy to do that. You know, Putin did get elected in 2000 and he kind of was the first person to really take aim at the liberal system of globalization and democracy. And then China I included because I think they represent the alternative model. They are actually, I think, more important to your future and your listeners' future than Russia or Hungary because they have just a different way of organizing not just government, but all of society, where the government uses not just traditional methods of suppressing dissent and putting critics in prison, but using technology in a way to have a kind of total information coverage and awareness of everything that people in China are doing and saying and thinking. I think the Chinese system represents this alternative of saying, well, if you trade away your political rights and you just don't think about that, we'll give you technology, we'll give you TikTok, we'll give you prosperity. And I think that, you know, that's a different flavor of the challenge. So, 
you're right, I could choose in a lot of countries, but I think that these three plus the United States kind of speak to trends that we see everywhere. Right. So I think one of the big questions I have when you say all of that is, how did these countries sort of get away with all of this? And I wanted to bring it back to something you mentioned, which was like the us versus them sort of philosophy to governing. And that's coupled with like, we're going to trade off prosperity for personal rights. Are those like strategies that they've been using to sort of undermine democracy? Yeah. I mean, the question of how they get away with it is an interesting one, because I think that, again, to return to when I was like your age, in the late 90s, there were stronger taboos about countries. If you looked at the kind of things that Russia has been doing in recent years, you know, poisoning political figures like Alexei Navalny, who's a leading opposition figure to Putin, has been, literally been poisoned and thrown in prison. If that had happened in the late 90s, like there would have been, I think, a, a much bigger outcry. It would have been much more shocking to people around the world. And part of what Putin did is he started chipping away at, at those norms, norms being things that are not, you know, they're not enforced, right? But what Putin kind of revealed is there's no police that are going to show up and, and arrest you for doing that from the international community. And, you know, he increasingly just started pushing the boundaries. Each year, it's like he just pushes farther. And that led all the way up to this really brutal invasion of Ukraine that's taken place. And the question is, how do you get away with it? I think part of what he also realized, and a lot of these other leaders have realized this, like, I need to kind of keep my population kind of sufficiently intimidated, but also I need to have enough of a base of support among my population that they'll back me up, that I, I can count on a foundation of people who are okay with what I'm doing. And I think what they've done is create an us versus them framework for all of their politics. So Putin always has an enemy and it can be a shifting enemy, right? When Putin came to power, the enemy was Chechen terrorists and he used the terrorist threat to justify taking a lot of the levers of power. He canceled the election of governors after a terrorist attack, for instance, because he said that was necessary to defend the security of the country. But over time, that cast of characters has shifted. The U.S. has been an enemy of Putin's. The LGBT community inside of Russia has been a big enemy that he's gone after. Any kind of socially liberal cosmopolitan figures he attacks as kind of against traditional Russian values. And I found the same thing in other countries, right? China, it's interesting because they're a communist party, but in talking to a lot of Chinese people and people in Hong Kong for my book, like what they will tell you is that once they opened up to some degree of capitalism in China, the Chinese Communist Party also dialed up its own nationalism. And suddenly in the Chinese media and in Chinese schools, Japan was an enemy, the US was an enemy, a lot of historical grievances from even before World War II started to kind of be a part of propaganda. And so I think all of these regimes kind of count on this idea of an enemy, an enemy within or an enemy without to justify their own authoritarianism. I would argue that we see that in the United States as well, that particularly since 9-11, I think you can trace some of the drift towards authoritarianism in this country to 9-11. And there you had a huge mobilization of the country and its politics towards this enemy, terrorists, right? But what's interesting is 
and this traces like your lifetime pretty directly, the post 9-11 period, the same kind of xenophobia and hate really that that was targeted at terrorists and then kind of propelled us into these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and that feature on kind of right-wing media in this country, well, suddenly that could be redirected towards immigrants at the southern border, or it could be redirected at, frankly, a black president or a deep state within, right? There's always an enemy that allows political leaders to kind of stir up grievances and justify normally unjustifiable actions. And so I think that really is the common thread. And I think the challenge for the rest of us is that part of what these leaders figured out is that the explosion of technology and the explosion of inequality in the world created a lot of grievance. A lot of people are angry in a lot of places. And when people are angry, they are ripe for those kinds of appeals. Wow, that's fascinating. So like you said, the United States is one of the big four parts of your book. And I wanted to get to how democracy is regressing in the United States. And one thing you mentioned in your book was that the United States sort of lost its identity after the Cold War. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on that and how that ties into what's happened in the past few years with democracy in the U.S. Yeah, I think as someone who kind of was born during the Cold War, and so I have like, I was pretty young, but I have a memory of that period in addition to kind of studying it. I don't want to romanticize it too much. You know, it's not like we got everything right during the Cold War. You had the Vietnam War, you had all manner of excesses. But, you know, when I was a kid, if you asked me kind of what does it mean to be American, it was something that we kind of defined in opposition to the Soviet Union. And so what seemed like platitudes, what seemed like cliches were actually what I believed as a kid. Like we were for freedom. We were for democracy. And frankly, that was kind of our national purpose in the world. And actually, if you study the Cold War, even it it led to some progress at home. Part of the reason that the civil rights movement succeeded, above all, it's because of the people that were a part of that movement. But it was also because, frankly, the establishment powers in America kind of realized that they needed to draw a better contrast with the Soviet Union, (laughs) that if you study kind of the, the time period around Brown versus Board of Education, which integrated schools, you literally had the U.S. government filing, you had people filing briefs on on behalf of integrating schools saying, hey, this is undercutting our capacity to say that that we're for freedom and the Soviets aren't. So I think that there was something disciplining about the Cold War where we thought of ourselves as the free world, as the, the democratic, small d democratic team, if you will. And if you look at the last 30 years, it feels to me like we were kind of rudderless. We never replaced that reason for being with, with a different rationale. What I feel like happened instead is profit became really important, <laughs> making money. That was always important. But if you look at kind of the opportunity presented to the United States after the fall of the Soviet Union, what did we do with that opportunity? A lot of what we did was like negotiate free trade agreements and open the floodgates of capitalism and really kind of deregulated capitalism. So you had some people making a lot of money, but other people not so much, you know, other people falling behind. Open floodgate to technological innovation that created some great things and created the internet, but then obviously kind of created these weird subcultures online that could be manipulated for disinformation and other purposes. And importantly, you had 9-11, where we kind of tried to make 
and I think this is a huge historical mistake, we tried to make the war on terror the new Cold War. I mean, literally, that's what George Bush said when he announced the war on terror. This is the same kind of epic struggles we had. And I think that was a very corrupting episode in our history because the war on terror, you had the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Afghanistan, you had torture, you had a lot of autocratic behavior by the United States. And I think we have not yet settled this question of, of well, what does it mean to be American after the Cold War? And I think part of the reason our own political debates are so hot is because they're debates about literally what kind of, who are we? Like, what, what is this country? And actually, I found that in researching this book, that the same battles are taking place in Russia and Hungary and China. And so I think this is an unresolved issue that if you asked different Americans today, what does it mean to be American? I think you get a lot of different answers in a way that I'm not sure you would get, have gotten as many different answers in 1980 or 1977 when I was born. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. You mentioned a few things right there. Three things, actually, I think. The military, which you referred to as the invasion of Iraq. You referred to profits, which in your book sort of came out in the 2008 financial crisis. And you also mentioned technology and obviously a lot of Russian interference with our social media and troll factories. And so I just wanted to get you to elaborate a little bit more on how those have eroded democracy and especially how those and the actions in the United States regarding 2008 and the Iraq war has sort of acted as a catalyst for democratic erosion throughout the rest of the world. It's a great question. And it's really the heart of what the book is about. I did focus on those three areas. In terms of capitalism and profit-seeking, I'll sum it up this way. So I talked to this Hong Kong government official kind of anonymously for my book, and I told him I was working on a book about the rise of nationalism and authoritarianism. And I said, you know, how do you think that happened? And he said, well, that's simple. It was a 2008 financial crisis. That's the moment when the narrative of liberalism and democracy collapsed in the West. And when the Chinese government decided we don't have to defer to the Americans anymore because they don't really know what they're doing anyway. <laughs> you know, And that was kind of a succinct summary, but there's some truth to it. I think capitalism got totally out of hand. I think that the deregulation of the 80s and 90s created just massive inequality that didn't exist before. The concentration of wealth in so few hands and the kind of decimation of traditional communities in this country and around the world. But I think part of what happened is the explosion of inequality in the world and the idea that people could break these rules and get away with it if they were rich enough, it really eroded people's trust in the, the whole system. <laughs> when I say the whole system, I don't mean just their own governments, but globalization. What was going on felt corrupt to people. And when the bottom fell out in 2008, and people really were hurt by that, fun, like, you know, it hurt a lot of Americans, you know, people's savings wiped out. And meanwhile, these rich people at the top, you know, they're fine. I think that opened the door to all these autocrats because they could come along and say, hey, the whole system is rigged. It's all corrupt. And democracy is just a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And while they didn't have answers to how to fix the economy, they had people to blame, right? And blame the elites, blame the establishment, blame the existing order, essentially. And what they offered was very familiar to people. It was like, the traditional identity, like the ethno-nationalist, you know, Christian Hungarian, evangelical Christian American, Russian Orthodox, through human history, like that's how people usually belong, kind of a tribal belonging. 
And so I, I think there's a connection, a direct line between the failure of capitalism in this period and the financial crisis really speaks to that and the rise of nationalist autocrats who are kind of offering a, an alternative form of belonging. You know, the, because this whole system is rigged, at least I can offer you, you know, the old team <laughs> that you can join up with and people to hate and people to blame for that. On the military and security side, I do think the Iraq war also undercut the idea that the whole international system made any sense. If the United States had this kind of implicit trust placed in us as the superpower, and then we did something so stupid and self-defeating as kind of invading and occupying a country that didn't attack us based on lies, basically, about weapons of mass destruction, I think that was a pivotal moment where suddenly people are like, well, do we have to really defer to the Americans here? But importantly, Bush wrapped the whole Iraq project in the language of democracy. It was, you know, he called it the freedom agenda, and we're bringing democracy to Iraq, and we're going to bring democracy to the Middle East. That's literally what he said for years. I think that did huge damage to democracy, because if you associate globally democracy with like the invasion and occupation of countries, suddenly democracy feels scary. It feels imperial. It feels imposed. And so in addition to kind of feeding the kind of us versus them mentality, the war on terror also discredited to some extent democracy. And then technology is the third one. In the US, you know, we create the internet, we create all these social media platforms. And at first it it's connecting people, it's empowering people, it's giving people information. It feels like it's going to be this source of democratization, really. But then what happened, and this happened kind of during the Obama years, I and mean, I wish, you know, I fault us for not doing more quicker to, to get ahead of this. But because those platforms are totally unregulated, right? I mean, they were, it was the Wild West. Autocrats figured out, well, wait a second, these can either be platforms like, you know, Facebook can either be a threat to us, or we can use it to our advantage. You know, we can create so much content that we can kind of manipulate the algorithm and just feed people whatever narrative we want to feed them, whether that's a hate-filled narrative, whether that's disinformation, whether that's conspiracy theory. And then meanwhile, because the platforms are designed to create profit based on clicks, like how much you click on something creates the profit, the most sensational information travel the fastest. And we lost control of these platforms. And they became the perfect tools of, of disinformation in the Russian context or surveillance in the Chinese context, and probably a blend of both here in the United States. These were not intentional decisions. We didn't set out to say, like, we want to use capitalism, the military, and technology to spread authoritarianism. I think they were unintended consequences, really, of how American kind of dominance of the world led to bad outcomes. And it's not all negative either, because I think there's some very powerful things about American innovation, America's example. The characters in my book are opposition figures and dissidents, and they look to America too for, for inspiration and to defend certain values. And so that's why America is such a complicated country. Like we are doing good and bad at the same time. Some of our creations like the internet and social media are doing good and bad at the same time. But clearly I think we have to do more to, to tilt that, <laughs> the balance of that in the direction of good. So you kind of mentioned some of this already, but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into it. You were the former deputy national security advisor for President Barack Obama. And throughout the book, a lot of the blame, and I think rightfully so, which you justified, falls on you know, Bush and, and Trump and the leaders after the Cold War. 
And we kind of just talked about this and I kind of want to put you on the spot a little bit, but is there anything you think your own administration could have done better or do you see your administration playing into any part of this democratic backsliding? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think people like me who are in positions of power and influence have to constantly ask themselves that kind of question. I describe being in, in, in charge of the U.S. government as, as a bit like steering an ocean liner. You know, you can't just turn on a dime. If you don't control Congress, there's limited to what you can do and that kind of thing. And so some of this direction was set. The war on terror was set. The financial crisis was done. The global economy collapsed and Obama took office. I say that not to avoid blame. I think we could have done more to try to more aggressively change the direction of the ocean line or even the makeup of the ocean liner itself. In terms of the financial crisis, I do think that the failure to kind of demonstrate that there was accountability for the people that created the financial crisis, you know, there wasn't a very visible effort to go after the kinds of people that created the, the financial crisis, the financial schemes that were done. And I think that really angered people, you know, and I think that anger, instead of kind of trying to capture that anger and channel it into to making more structural changes to the economy, that anger ended up getting harnessed, you know, in this country by the Tea Party. And so while I think it would have been harder to just come in and completely redesign the American economy, that's, that's something that you can't do. I think there could have been more aggressive action to take on inequality itself. So much of the focus was on you know, pulling the economy out of ditch and then good areas like, you know, providing people with health care and things like that. But certainly, I think that the Obama administration should be scrutinized, even if I think our orientation, our motivation was better than a Bush or a Trump and that we were trying to do the right thing in a lot of these spaces. I think we clearly could have done more and we could have done certain things differently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think at, at the end of the day, I think in your book, you mentioned it's all human. And so not everything is so so easy to change. I kind of wanted to steer this conversation in a more personal direction because your book is basically, it reads almost like a story, a personal story. And it's beautifully written, by the way. And I was surprised when you actually, I think you have a degree in creative writing. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was really interesting to me. And it was a beautifully written book. You mentioned, like one of the big themes of your book is you're kind of looking in at your own country from an outside perspective. And you mentioned that you feel like an outsider in your own country is a lot of the times. So I was just wondering, like, what makes you feel that way? And when do you most feel like you're an outsider in, in this country? Well, thanks for the comments on the writing. I guess I love to travel. And I've always loved to travel. And, and I, I think I really developed that love of travel when I was in, in college and I studied abroad. Because I think it's a really interesting experience to kind of look at your own country from the outside in. Because you just see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. It, it's kind of like you know being from a family, or even in a friendship where there's some problems, and sometimes you have to step outside of it. And you kind of look at it and you're like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. But I think particularly after the 2016 election, I felt like that at home. Like I felt like an outsider. I felt almost like an exile. I started to feel like the symbols, right, like of national identity. I didn't. I really didn't like a lot of things about the Bush administration, as you could tell from this conversation. But there was something different about what was happening in the Trump years where when Trump, like there's that picture of him hugging the American flag or the way in which he would try to kind of wrap himself in the military or the kind of lazy 
patriotism kind of being used for xenophobic purposes, right? For a travel ban or to kind of demonize people at the southern border. Suddenly, my relationship to patriotism and to symbols like the American flag or institutions, it's like, well, that was a different feeling than even thinking that George Bush launched a, an absolutely destructive and misguided war, which is weird to say in a way, because like, obviously the Iraq war is in a lot of ways worse than any one thing that Trump did. But I think Bush gave lip service, at least, you know, to us all being Americans. And, you know, and I actually think he believes it. I think he believes that you and I are equally American as he is. I truly think he believes that, you know, a recent immigrant from Latin America is just as American as you or me, or a Muslim, an Arab American in Michigan is, right? I don't think Donald Trump believes that. And, I, if, and if you watch a Trump rally, I don't think those people believe it. And so suddenly, like, I was living with a kind of government that was kind of hostile to my identity in a way that, and I'm a white guy, so they're hostile to me because I, you know, because of who I worked for and what I did. It, I think it was probably obviously even scarier for people who felt targeted for other reasons. And that mirrored what I would hear about from people in countries with more autocratic governments where you're not counted as fully Hungarian as a Viktor Orban supporter, you know? And, and I think that's a slippery slope. That's a dangerous thing. Sometimes we have to like look at what's happening in our own country and think about it as if, what if this happened in another country? What if a mob stormed the parliament in another country and tried to overthrow the election? Like we'd be like, whoa, that's a country that really has some serious problems. They're on the on the Freedom House Index. They're backsliding democratically. Here it becomes a partisan thing. Well, Democrats think this is really bad, but Republicans think this. And I'm just with this book and basically everything I do and say, my podcast, I'm just trying to show people like, no, look at America and what America does, good and bad. It's not all bad, obviously. But in the same way that you look at any government, and, and you'll see it a little more clearly. Wow. I actually never thought of looking at it that way. And it definitely is a good way to look at it. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It was super fun having this conversation with you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it was great talking to you. So Oliver, after that conversation, I'm wondering what your takeaway was. I mean, I learned a lot from this conversation. Ben Rhodes went over the history of so many countries and the backsliding of democracy, including how it's being attacked now. But I think the biggest takeaway as someone who's grown up in America, as well as grown up with a very romantic picture of what America is, I think the most important takeaway was that America has kind of lost its mission and its identity, which is why there's so much conflict these past few years. You know, America went from the champion of democracy in the Cold War and in the 1940s to sort of being hypocritical and attacking foreign countries in ways where our goals weren't exactly clear, such as the Iraq War. I think that has sort of stayed until now, where Ben Rhodes goes over how a lot of people still adopt this us-versus-them ideology and are looking for something to actively attack, such as President Obama perhaps being an African-American as a president. And so I think this us versus them ideology is something that's very toxic. It's problematic. And I think going into the future, it's something that we need to address. Thanks for sharing. Our producer, Oliver Wang, is a sophomore at Dartmouth College. 
Ben Rhodes is a national security analyst and senior advisor to former President Barack Obama. You can follow him on Twitter at B Rhodes. That's B R H O D E S. We've included a link to his work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. That way, you will never miss an episode. Next week, we ask Are we learning United States Indigenous history wrong? The U.S. system of reservations, it was copied in 1948 by Israel, the founding of Israel, how they would treat the Palestinians and the apartheid regime in South Africa. And in each of those cases, they took the U.S. plan, literally, they actually produced a document where they had taken the plan from the United States. Hitler also used the American model. So in some ways, you can learn more from those copying where they reveal it, whereas U.S. historians hide this and they don't call it what it is, you know, genocide. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>